Welcome to episode two of Pizza Spins with myself, Jackson Burnett, Emily Stiles, Hi. and Angel Winklepleck. Today, we will be discussing Sid Barrett's 1970 album, in my opinion, a masterpiece, The Madcap Laughs. And we will also be reviewing the Little Caesar's Extra Most Bestest cheese. Mm. And Emily and Angel may also have thoughts on the extra most bestest pepperoni that we also got, but that is not the official pizza of this episode. No, not the official pizza. Although perhaps the better pizza of this episode. But I, we'll, I we'll, wouldn't know. I didn't even touch it. <laughs> we, we'll get to that later. <laughs> First, we have uh, a wonderful album and uh, history to get to, don't we? Okay, so <laughs> Sid Barrett was born in 1946. His birth name is Roger Keith Barrett. Worse. Where did the Sid come from, do you ask? I was a fan of Sid Barrett uh, in high school, and I always thought his name was just Sidney, spelled kind of cool. In fact, it is Roger Keith Barrett. How did the Sid come about? We'll find out later in a brief, slightly interesting anecdote. <laughs> Word. Anyway, Sid Barrett lived a normal, middle-class lifestyle. His father was a renowned... British pathologist Max Barrett uh, and everybody listening to this should look up a picture of Max Barrett because he makes Spongebob's front teeth look normal. This guy <laughs> looks like a cartoon rabbit from a World War II movie. It's insane. It's absolutely ridiculous. You can tell that his father's teeth would play a major role in the whimsical oh, wow. psychedelic imagery of Sid Barrett's later music. I mean, he looks like he's from a storybook. It's crazy. <laughs> okay, yeah, this right. man looks like Sid the Sloth, but like a sock puppet <laughs> version in like a really bad wig. He just, oh, he God. Like, he just looks so elongated. Yeah, that's a that's a really painful. It's a very British looking man. Yeah. Whew. God, we are just really knocking the Brits' teeth on this podcast. And we're not going to stop, because <laughs> Well, Sid Barrett had great teeth, so, I mean, the main subject of this particular episode, I mean, we're not knocking him, we're knocking his dad. Yeah. Anyway, from what I could find, and uh, I've been a, a, an almost unhealthy level of a Sid Barrett fan for many years, and I've never really looked into his childhood that much, but it seems like it was a very whimsical... Uh, sort of a situation. He grew up in Cambridge, mm -hmm. which is a little bit northeast of London. Uh, I'm not familiar enough with that particular area to know if it would be considered a suburb of London or if it would be like the next city up the road or something like that. But it is quite near London. It's a very beautiful place. Uh, lots of trees and such. And I found this one great quote about... This is a quote about Max Barrett, the doctor, before Sid Barrett ever became famous. His family life was a happy one. Tea with the Barretts was fun, for he had imparted to his family his unbounded curiosity, which was, in the view of many of his friends, his most endearing characteristic. Aww. So uh, that sounds quite great, quite a good upbringing. And uh, obviously we'll be getting into this. Uh, Sid Barrett had some uh, pretty intense mental health issues yeah, down pretty, the road. But it sounds like his childhood was just a, a, a dandy time. Uh, he was interested in instruments for his entire life, although he never considered himself a musician. Even when he was working with Pink Floyd and making his solo albums, including the Madcap Laughs, if he identified himself, he always identified himself as a painter and sometimes a writer. 
so he was painting and writing prose and keeping a diary his entire childhood. He also played piano and some string instruments as a hobby like ukulele and so forth. And you can tell uh, if you listen to some of Pink Floyd's super early recordings, like stuff from 1964, you can tell that this man's main gig was not music until Pink Floyd got going. Mm. He's not that good. Of course, he did get quite good. I have a question about the diary situation. Yes. So you said that he kept extensive diaries, like he he kept pretty consistent diaries throughout his childhood? Uh, From what I can tell, I wasn't able to find any, it doesn't look like we have any of those diaries. It's just from accounts, yeah, it's just from accounts from his family member, his sister Rosemary, uh, who took care of him from 1979 until he died. Uh, gave some interviews after he died. When he was still alive, his sister Rosemary was very respectful of his privacy. Well, she did help out with that movie. I'm not familiar with the movie. I don't remember what the movie is called, but she helped out secretly, like giving Mm -hmm. interviews about this documentary about him. And then like he went over to her house to watch it. But he Uh was so out of it. He was like, it's just so noisy. The music's so noisy. Like he didn't know what the, (laughs) it was about him and the music he made, but he was like, ew. That's so yeah. funny because in uh, one of the interviews that I watched last night, he he has such a problem with Pink Floyd being called noisy. Right, right. He's and like, it's, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he like, says something to the effect of it's... Well, it's we, no- we, we quite... In fact, much of it is is not very noisy at all. Yeah. So it's like he acknowledges that some of their music is very noisy. The music they played live is noisy because that's how you keep an audience's attention when everyone's been on LSD for the last two years. <laughs> uh, but also, like, if you listen to his Pink Floyd album, uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and especially the Madcap Laughs, you can tell that he also uh, really, really loved soft voice acoustic stuff. Sure. And his work after Pink Floyd is almost exclusively that. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's like, you know... Seems like, based on what he did once he was totally artistically free and didn't care about the charts or concerts or anything anymore, it seems like he tended more towards the quiet stuff. Yeah. And especially if you give it a couple decades of age, um, I could certainly see why he would be like, that's too loud. <laughs> but yes, Rosemary, from what I can gather, was a pretty cool caretaker. Sid really wanted to be left alone, and she she was pretty good with allowing that to happen. Uh, after his death, though, she has gone a little bit more public with his stuff. Like, she sold some of his paintings and stuff like that. But a lot of what we know about Sid Barrett's childhood comes from things that Rosemary has said in interviews since he passed. Oh. Um, so, yeah. And now, do you know what time it is? What time is it? It's time for a brief and somewhat entertaining anecdote about how Roger Keith Barrett became Sid Barrett. And there's two potential stories. One of them is that a local Cambridge jazz upright bass player named Sid the Beat Barrett was uh, one of Teenage Sid's favorite musicians to see live down the pub. And so he was like, my last name's Barrett. I'm going to take Sid, but I'm going to change the I to a Y to stand out. That one is not my favorite. (laughs) The... The uh, the one that I really like is so Sid went to a uh, middle class uh, sort of, you know, kind of a little bit posh school, uh, middle school and high school in 
Cambridge, uh, but he tended to dress in a way that was more stereotypically associated with the working class. So he's like the NYU kid wearing Carhartt beanies. Exactly. Exactly that. Uh, Thank you. And it was determined by his classmates, <laughs> half jokingly and, and half bullyingly, uh, that Roger was too upper class a name for him, so they gave him the name Sid, which was more stereotypically associated with the working class. I think that one is pretty interesting, and if I could pick which one was true, I would pick that one over Sid the Beat Barrett. Do you think the first one was a rumor started by Sid the Beat Barrett to pat his own back a little bit? Maybe. I, I couldn't find out much about Sid the Beat Barrett. I wish I'd looked more into him to see if he was just trying to steal Sid What if Sid the, the Barrett, Beat Barrett, Barrett is Sid under. Barrett? <laughs> so, Sid going in from middle school into high school. This is early 60s. At this point, Sid Barrett's father dies. He's pretty young. I think he was like 55 or something. Uh, I, I think... I don't remember what his cause of death was. Either way, they were not expecting him to be dead that soon. And there's a really sad story about uh, Sid Barrett in his diary on that day, just writing the date and leaving the rest of the page blank. Very moody 16-year-old uh, type stuff. I think it's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 That doesn't mean it's not moody. You're right. A lot of I like that it's heartbreaking uh, shit is easily moody. one of the most momentous things that happened in his life, and he still didn't notate anything about it because he was like, you'll remember... Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's his motivation. Right. Maybe, maybe I'm just also moody and listen to the Smiths too much, but he didn't have that yet. You know what? I think you might be on the same page. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so, this actually ends up being very formative for a number of reasons. So, after uh, Sid Barrett's father dies, again, he's about 15, 16, um, his mom starts, at this point, all of his siblings are out of the house, so it's just him and his mom, and his mom starts renting out rooms to travelers, uh, people of that sort. Lodges, the British call them. Yes. Uh, you probably don't know the answer to this, but isn't he like the fifth out of six kids or something? He did have several siblings. So where the fuck is the youngest sibling if he's the only one that's at home? The, it might have been... It, it might be the case that most of the siblings were out of the house. Maybe. Everything like I read said Like it was almost all. an empty nest. I guess so. Or uh, maybe this was like a thing where some... Uh, I, don't I don't know. I don't know if they I were think... all by the same two people or if there was like one kid that was like mm -hmm. a half-sibling or what. Yeah, I'm not that. sure. Either way, it was a mostly empty home. Mm -hmm. So uh, they started renting rooms out. Um, and in order to encourage Sid to sort of recover mentally from the loss of his father, his mom starts encouraging him to play impromptu concerts for the random people that are staying in the uh, in the house. She made a venue. She became a promoter. Uh -huh. right. She could have she just sure sent did. him to therapy. <laughs> no, be his agent. No, this is 1961. Monetize it. Monetize it. Monetize it. <laughs> 1961, you go to therapy, you might as well jump straight to the lobotomy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is no therapy. Yes, There's only like an right. ice bath with that little plastic sheet where your head's just like all cut out for you. God. It is also around this time that Sid Barrett meets Roger Waters, who would later be uh, one of the major members of Pink Floyd. Uh, they play together in a couple of bands throughout middle school and high school. Um, so they are, they are now aware of each other. And here's a fun fact that I didn't know. Sid Barrett was actually, one of his middle school teachers was Roger Waters' mother before he ever met Roger Waters, mm -hmm. which right. I think is cool. 
And we all know, everyone who's listened to The Wall knows, that must have been a stressful class for Sid. <laughs> I was going to say, as soon as I read that, I immediately thought of that song. And I was like, damn, that's more personal than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So things are continuing. Sid joins a band called Jeff Mott and the Mottos. Uh, and he starts playing gigs around Cambridge. So, you know, he's out late high school performing for people that don't know him. That's a, that's a pretty good start. Uh, for a young artist. Um, When he turns 18, however, uh, as I said earlier, he identified as a painter. Uh, He goes to the Cambridgeshire College of Arts and Technology to study technology. But not arts? (laughs) It's a confusing career step. Painting. Oh, okay. Uh, To study (laughs) painting, although every other member of Pink Floyd went to school for architecture. Wow. That's cool. I think yeah, yeah. every member of Pink Floyd except Sid Barrett were in school to be architects and they Pink Floyd took off before they graduated. So they just dropped out, wow. uh, which I think is a pretty neat little tidbit. Yeah, That's kind of the, the dream scenario and, that uh, we're all looking yeah. for. I feel. And, and actually some, this is a little off topic, but some Pink Floyd songs, some like the experimental noise mm-hmm. songs, uh, they actually wrote those by not with regular musical notation, but by graphing them out on like architectural graph paper. That's actually really like cute. drawing on graph paper what it should sound like. Yeah. I love that. What a wow. cool way to look at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also met David Gilmore at this time, who uh, they would have a little bit of a troubled relationship later on. Uh, there's never animosity, uh, but we'll get to that. Around this time, he's still performing music. He is studying to be a painter, but he's performing music. And after he gets into some singer-songwriters, such as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, uh, and Bob Dylan, who he listened to, but he has one song called Bob Dylan Blues (laughs) that is really not kind to Bob Dylan. So I don't know if he's a Bob Dylan fan, but Bob Dylan was certainly an influence. He starts to write his own songs, and he's been writing fiction all his life. So basically he's going with uh, his fiction writing influences, but now he's doing it in verse. Um, So he's writing a lot of whimsical songs like Effervescing Elephant, which is uh, about an elephant that tries to trick a lion into eating smaller animals uh, and lures the smaller animals into a false sense of security so he'll be safe, but the lion just comes back with enough lions to take down the elephant. It's pretty fun. Mm-hmm. All right, Sid. It's not on the madcap laughs, though. Am I wrong? Um, I think that I read somewhere that several of his songs were based on books that he had read as well. Maybe I'm um, wrong. He did, like, the Led Zeppelin, Lord of the Rings thing. There yeah. were some heavy, heavy uh, influences. So... Uh, a lot of his favorite books uh, really influenced what he wrote. Most of his songs were like sort of whimsical fairy tale type stuff, or they were deeply personal uh, lyrics that were hidden. They were like really cryptic and artsy. Uh, like they're personal, but they still have this fantasy feeling uh, to them. So yeah. In 1964, still an art student, uh, Sid joins his friend Roger Waters' band, uh, which has a number of names throughout the years. That's good. You never want to be consistent. You always want to throw them off. The the <laughs> screaming abdabs, range. Sigma Six. It's an abdab. Sigma Five. They lost a member. Oh. <laughs> he didn't die. He just stopped. <laughs> Thank you. So, but uh, by late 1964, they're called the T Set. 
and they have a problem. The name, yeah. Start there. You see, the T-set booked to gig where another band that performed earlier in the set was also <laughs> called the T-set. So they're just like, oh, God, what do we do, man? Are we just going to change it? Here's what happened. <laughs> Sid said, right, oh, boys, I've got me some records here. This is not what Sid Barrett sounds like. I've got me some records here. And he whipped out his record collection that he always carried with him. And two of his favorite blues artists, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council, were on the top of the stack. So he said, there you go, Pink Floyd with the Pink Floyd sound. And they were like, okay. <laughs> yeah, obviously they weren't quite married to T-Set. <laughs> yes. And they were like, okay, uh, I guess we'll come up with a real name later. And they never did. Yeah. Well, I guess they shortened it. They, <laughs> they did get rid of this. The Pink Floyd sound. They were listed yeah. as the Pink Floyd sound in live performances, but they never oh, were right. on an official release. Right, nothing that was pressed. Um, so they performed. They're now the Pink Floyd sound. And Sid Barrett's very first still existing recordings come from December of 1964. You'll often see them credited as 1965. That's not correct. That's when the basic tracks were produced. They were recorded in December 1964 when Barrett was 18 years old. Well, you heard it here first, folks. They're not good. <laughs> because you see, early Pink Floyd was heavily focused on like bluesy covers mm -hmm. and originals, and they are not good at that. I don't know if you've seen any Pink Floyd interviews, but aside from Sid Barrett, the members of Pink Floyd have less soul in all four of them <laughs> combined than than Mick Jagger has in his toenails. Bold <laughs> <laughs> statement. They should yeah. not be performing the blues, but they are. In 1965, Sid Barrett drops acid for the first time. Nothing much comes oh, wow. of this. Yeah, really? Nothing eventful? Nothing, <laughs> nothing much comes of nothing, this. Nothing, nothing happened down the line that you no, could look no, back no. on this event and say, he had a, he had a really good relationship with psychedelic thing. drugs, yeah. So, in, in 1965, <laughs> Sid Barrett drops acid for the first time. By the end of the evening, he was naked in the bathtub with one of his best friends, and they were chanting, no rules, no rules, no rules. Yeah, well, who needs acid to do that? Which is true. Sounds like Angel and I do that every other time. <laughs> <laughs> so throughout 1965, ostensibly uh, as a result of Sid's uh, further uh, experimentations with psychedelic drugs, along with the very whimsical and fantastical nature of his literary influences in childhood, uh, the Pink Floyd sound uh, starts to become a little bit more experimental. Uh, at the beginning, basically what they do is they just take the blues and R&B covers that they're already playing, and then in between the second verse, the second chorus, and the last chorus, they just add 15 minutes of psychedelic jamming. So they'll be playing, like, please, Mr. Postman. And then at the two-and-a-half-minute mark, they just do just go crazy with all lights and stuff. They do psychedelic shit for, like, 15 minutes. And then they just finish. They do the last chorus, and that's the end of the song. But the band quickly realizes that they're better at psychedelic jamming than they are at blues and R&B. Uh, so that's what they focus on going into 1966, uh, when they finally 
start to break through. Before we get into that, there is one more thing we need to talk about, a major event in Sid Barrett's life from 1965 that I had never heard of before doing research for this episode. In 1965, uh, when he was 18 or 19, depending on what time of year it was, uh, he became interested in a Sikh sect mm, right. based in Britain. I no idea how this is pronounced. I'm just going to read it how it's spelled, called Sant Mat. Um, and he and a couple of his friends attempted to join. These friends were a couple years older than him. One of them would later design the album art for Pink Floyd. And they attempted to join this sect. Sid was really interested in Eastern religion, uh, that sort of thing. Although later his influence were like Chinese Eastern religion, whereas Sikhism is like Pakistan. Yeah, didn't he right. write a song based on like the I Ching, if that's how he you did. pronounce it? Yes. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. But I don't he know. did indeed. So uh, he tries to join uh, this uh, sect of Sikhism, and he's rejected by their um, leader. I don't know if it was the leader of the entire sect or just their highest ranking local uh, person, uh, but he's rejected from joining on the grounds that he is too young. His friends are accepted, and this makes him very, very sad. Um, is this an actual sect or is this a cult? Because I was reading it. I feel and like I, if it was a cult, they would have let him in. That's what I because I was gonna say good <laughs> on this possible cult leader for being like, no, you're too young and too impressionable. No cult leader would ever do that. So I think that right, right away exactly. from right. So. Uh, the band continues. You now have in Sid's lyrics a big uh, fantasy influence still. You now have the influence of Eastern religion and Eastern sacred texts and Eastern poetry and that kind of stuff. And you also have this big psychedelic wave coming in as members of the band are smoking a ton of weed. Interestingly, they all deny this. Why? Even though there's footage of it happening. Why lie about smoking weed when you were a kid when you're they, like no, old and rich? The members of Pink Floyd, absolute every single one of them that is that except Sid because he didn't give interviews. Every single one of them is like, we didn't do drugs. Is that a joke? Do you think that's like a running bit they have amongst? I don't think it's a running bit. I I just think it's a weird hang up they have. I know that huh. Roger Waters well, smoked may- weed because there's one interview that he does with Howard Stern, uh, where he's like, I never smoked weed, just marijuana i was however addicted to cigarettes and in those days we rolled cigarettes half tobacco half marijuana and howard's like that's smoking so you smoked pot and roger was like no i smoked cigarettes now you smoke spliffs asshole (laughs) what the hell is he trying to do (laughs) i don't know why they're so hung up on drugs it's weird I think tactic. I would get actually angry if I was Howard Stern in this situation. Listen, you stupid motherfucker. I don't know if I can keep my composure. I don't think you understand what smoking weed is. You, you can't you make a screwdriver. Bullet, no matter what quantity, you have smoked weed. You, you can't make a screwdriver and then say it's orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Huh? Also, there's a fuck ton of footage of Roger Waters stoned out of his mind at concerts, and you should look them up. Do They're really funny. He- forgot i don't think he forgot because he knows he used to roll his cigarettes with marijuana they're not united over literally anything else about their history they're like yeah yeah yeah, we did lsd but no we didn't smoke weed jesus christ no a lot of them deny doing lsd roger waters said he did lsd twice this is interesting because it's very similar to my own personal story uh he did it the first time it was the best drug experience he ever had and he did it a second time and he was depressed for like three years well ain't that just the way I mean, that is a common story. That happens to a lot of people. 
Because you get lulled into a false sense of security yeah. the first time, and then you're not careful the second time. Don't hmm. do that. <laughs> yeah, Always have a trip LSD sitter. Once Think about it sitter. thoroughly before you do it. Yeah. So in 1966, Pink Floyd becomes famous in the London Underground for uh, their weird style, basically, where they just play an R&B number with a 15-minute psychedelic freakout in the middle of it. Uh, they end up being the house band at the UFO Club. Uh, it's UFO, but British people say UFO, which is the wrong. UFO. I don't know. I think UFO is cute. I think that's one of the, the only UFO valid things club. they do say. The UFO, UFO. Club. UFO. Down at the UFO Club, which sort that's of became right. the hub of the London underground scene. So they were really like the biggest underground band in England at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they start performing at the UFO Club, that's when they first start to book gigs elsewhere, like Birmingham and places like that. Uh, they're not popular enough to tour yet, but they are performing outside of London. People are saying, hey, we'll give you money to come here and perform. Uh, so towards the end of the year, they get discovered by a trio of young music execs. Uh, these guys are the same age as the band, basically. So they're like, why don't we just start our own music company? And they do. How hard must it be to take orders from someone who's literally your same age? <laughs> well, they were a partnership. So they started oh, okay. they started a music production company with a producer, a manager. Uh, I'm not sure what, but there were three music business people who were like, let's start a company with these guys. And they went in and it was a, they all held one seventh of the company. So it was a partnership. But these, obviously, these new guys were the ones with the business sense, you know. Egalitarian label. (laughs) Honestly, that's what we should all do. We should create an egalitarian music label. Don't worry. (laughs) It would be out of business by 1969. Oh, damn it. Damn it. So it's called Black Hill Enterprises, and they managed to secure Pink Floyd a recording contract. And in late 1966, they record their very first single, Arnold Lane, Written by Sid Barrett. I think that song sucks. I'm sorry. I just have to throw that in there. I don't know if I have a strong opinion about that song. Okay, I guess I don't or have if that I even strong remember opinion. how it goes. I wouldn't go to bat for how much I think it sucks. The same as I wouldn't go to bat for how much I like it. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I just think... You're unimpressed. It's not that good. It's really not. It's and, not. But the backstory is fun. Uh, the keyboard uh, solo is great. Yeah. <clears throat> but I'm not in love with the song. Anyway, this song is a minor hit. Um, however, it does, as with many experimental bands' first singles, get banned by the BBC. In this case, it is banned because it tells the story of a cross-dresser who uh, steals clothing, uh, women's bloomers from... I believe the cross-dressing thing was not true. The cross-dressing thing was something they threw in to make it spicier. Sid was like, I think this is more fun. He did steal underwear, though. No, no, no. The whole ba- Oh, yeah, I guess maybe the lyric where he's actually putting it on. Yeah, yeah. They, they embellished the story. But. Yeah, yeah. It supposedly is based on a real guy who mm-hmm. stole women's clothing from around Cambridge. And then there's also a passage about him getting home and putting the clothes on. But they never caught the guy. So obviously that is a fanciful, a fanciful <laughs> uh, imagining of the band. There's just a big difference between someone stealing women's underwear and someone wearing women's underwear. Well, in the song, he unambiguously wears them. But the true story, it's based on the underwear we're just going missing. Yeah. I think wearing it is fine, but don't steal it <laughs> as from long other as you people. buy exactly. it from the store. Or wearing steal someone's it from underwear the store. is fine. Don't steal it and from and person. and by the wearing way, I would like to 
put a disclaimer here. Uh, I use the term cross-dresser. Obviously, it's a weird subject, especially since it was 1966. Right. That's just the term that is used in almost all the interviews and all the yeah. news release. So that's just that's There's just probably the, a better term. That's for just it the term I'm going to use. It, it, the song does not go into his gender identity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It just says that he wears bloomers. Yeah. However, on the strength of Arnold Lane, it's not like. Last week with God Save the Queen, where BBC not only banned the song, they also wanted to execute the members publicly. <laughs> they, they just banned the song. Right, uh, but on the, strength, on the strength of the song, another single was ordered. This became See Emily Play, which reached number six in the charts. Mm. It's a very good song. It's not I about really Emily Styles. I like that song because my name is in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and on the strength of that, uh, their first album is commissioned. That's not what this episode is about, nope. so I'll just mention it briefly. It's The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Sid wrote all the lyrics except for on one song that's about a guy being a dick to his doctor. And uh, yeah, it's a really great album. It is named after a passage from Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows. Like we mentioned earlier, it has an entire song based on passages from the I Ching. Mm -hmm. Very whimsical, very philosophical, very fantastical, and musically often quite creepy and you know, scary. Definitely one of my favorite Pink that, Floyd albums. Uh, in, in hindsight, a lot of people like to say, no sane mind could have made this. I don't know <sighs> if I'd go that far. <laughs> but it definitely has some, like, really unhinged passages in it. Yeah, but those are the people that watch Alice in Wonderland yeah. or anything vaguely <laughs> creative and like, oh, you had to have been on drugs to make but this. Darling, like, no, you're boring. You're boring. This is not Wonderland and you are not Alice. And actually, we weren't on drugs. We were just on cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, we were on half marijuana cigarettes. So Sid starts to go a little bit bonkers. People are noticing he's kind of being standoffish with interviewers. There are times in concerts where he's missing notes and that sort of thing. And then uh, one weekend, he's just gone. They don't have any shows. He doesn't miss any shows for this. Uh, but one weekend, just no one knows where Sid is, you know? And he's, he's roommates with uh, Pink Floyd keyboard player Richard Wright at this time. So you would expect, you know, at least he would know at least Richard is, would know where Sid is at. Because they live together because he would come um, home to sleep at night. Maybe you'll get to this, but is this the same time that he appeared on TV and just kind of stared? Yeah, that's, that's coming a, right up. That's okay. a second okay. time. Right? So Sorry. he gets back at the end of this weekend, and according to Richard Wright, when he got back at the end of that weekend... It was like all of the decline that had been gradually happening for the past few months had jumped ahead like two years. This is the first time anyone said uh, Sid looks like he has black holes behind his eyes, mm -hmm. which later would become a notorious Pink Floyd lyric. Mm -hmm. Sid has never spoken about that weekend. Probably doesn't remember it. He definitely doesn't remember it now because he's dead. But he probably <laughs> didn't remember it at a time when someone could have asked him about it. Um but yeah, and after that, it was like you would almost call it going off a cliff in terms of decline, but he had clearly already gone off the cliff right. over that weekend. Uh, after this, people start to suspect that he is schizophrenic, that LSD has fried his brain. Honestly, pretty vague 1960s explanations for something not being right. right. Whether or not... LSD or schizophrenia or both were at play. He was never professionally looked at by a real doctor. So we'll never know. As far know. as we know. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll never know. Right. 
what actually happened to Sid. But at this point, maybe we shouldn't know. mm -hmm. Like that's such personal information. At this point, he starts to noticeably experience hallucinations. He'll stare vacantly for hours and hours and hours while at home, according to his roommate, Richard Wright. Uh, He's got memory loss. He can't remember things that he should. He can't get through sentences. He has a very depressed demeanor and seems like he never wants to be doing anything or talking to anyone. And at this time, he also starts to become a little bit violent. And this is one thing that doesn't get covered a lot, I think, because everyone loves Sid Barrett so much. Um, It's an important thing to cover because Mm -hmm. it did happen. He started to be, like, domestically violent. Uh, Like, and this is Sid cancel stuff. Sid cancellation hour. Um, At one weekend, his girlfriend was pissing him off, and he locked her in a closet Mm -hmm. for, like, 24 hours. Like, he punched her and threw her in a closet, just mm-hmm. locked her in there. Um, <clears throat> he was never violent before, so it could have been a psychotic episode. Either way, it's it's really, really, really nasty, terrible behavior. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this guy has completely gone off the rails very quickly. Yeah. Um, so, in order to address this, after a couple of weeks, the band decides to take a weekend off. And Sid, send Sid with Richard uh, down to Formentera, which is an, a Spanish island uh, in the Atlantic. It's a really nice, peaceful, resorty place. They send him down there with Richard Wright and Dr. Sam Hutt. Uh, he was a doctor, um, and he was heavily involved with the psychedelics scene. I mean, he was a young guy. He was 30, 31, 32. Um, so he was sort of like, you know, he was the hip doctor for the hippie generation. I took him down there and no improvement. He was not diagnosed by Sam Hutt, but basically Sam Hutt said the acid has destroyed his brain to the extent that there's nothing you can do to get him back. Wouldn't you say that he's a psychedelic doctor? Does he ever prescribe that to treat people or is he just no, happen to know he, a lot of He's about not one of those. Being that it's kind of a burden. He's not thing like he's not like Alan he's Watts. He's not a Timothy Leary yeah. type. Yeah, I was like, is he telling people to do acid or does he no, just study the effects no. of it after? He studies the effects. So that's the closest Sid ever gets to a diagnosis. Sam Hutt never says he has schizophrenia. Sam Hutt just said he did too much acid and he's gone. Uh, which is not a diagnosis. Oh, and uh, one oh. thing that is that I do consider when thinking about Sid Barrett, as I often do, is that he was, at this time, 22, 23. That is around the time that you would expect to see schizophrenia right. onset right. if you haven't yeah. had it, like, symptoms from birth, which is incredibly rare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it could be something like that. Again, we'll never know, because he was never diagnosed in a public way. And he grew um, up in a time when nobody talked about it or even acknowledged that shit. They just right. threw you in they a brick building. Said, I mean, in 1967, also... schizophrenia just meant there's a problem. It's a big one. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they, slept, they slept it on everything. Yeah. Every, Anybody every, who's a little weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine someone with an OCD diagnosis like myself or, you know. Yeah. And any any one of our mental disorders, literally the second, mental disorders, could have been described as schizophrenia in during his time. The second I tried to explain to a doctor that if I smoke weed, sometimes voices sound like they're two rooms away from where they really are, they would have thrown me in a tub. <laughs> they would have just locked just the a door. Rusty tub. Just like don't don't even try. They would have chained me to a radiator somewhere. Oh god, somewhere in West Virginia. <laughs> so we are now after the Foreman Terra trip. We're now in November. 1967. 
this point, the band's trying to get him back, trying to go on tour. Mm -hmm. By March 1967, he would be kicked out. My March 1968, apologies, he would be kicked out of the band. Mm -hmm. um, why does that happen? Because after the trip to Formentera, <laughs> things get a lot fucking worse oh. really fast. Oh, so they go on their U.S. tour, which is always hard. A, a band's first international tour, I think they played in France, but that's like, what, half a state away from well, London? Well, especially from England to the U.S. Like, yeah. the Sex Pistols had the same problem when they came over. It was just much bigger and much more diverse yeah. than they anticipated. They right. were so used to playing the same fucking island. Right. And the cities didn't have enough differences between each and other to it, make that know, big of a culture shock. If you're already in a bad place mentally, right. spending months on the road in an unfamiliar place, especially if you're as in love with, like, English culture and that sort of stuff as Sid was... That's not something you should do yeah. <laughs> at that time. Uh, so they go on this tour to the U.S., and this is where Sid starts to just, like, derail concerts. Uh, there's one, Angel mentioned this earlier, there's one appearance they have on an American TV show where Sid just doesn't play or lip sync at all. Like, he just stands there and stares into the camera with his arms at his side. And it's, it's kind of funny. Know. It Seems... would be extremely funny if it wasn't a sign of a really big problem. Yeah. If, if we didn't have hindsight, it'd be so goddamn funny. Like it's he just kind of plugs, funny. He just detunes his own fucking guitar yeah, on right, stage. Right. And the audience thinks it's a bit. And they love it. And no, then it later, seems... it's like, no, Sid's really fucked up. And it, these videos are kind of funny if you can find them. They, they get taken <laughs> down from YouTube whenever they get put up. But I've seen them before. And it's really funny because, like... Sid is supposed to be lip syncing, so you know that they're just playing over a recording. But Sid's not doing anything, and the other <laughs> members of the band are still pretending to play. And you're like, guys, have a cigarette. <laughs> the gig is up, folks, in the, in the most literal sense. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, that's, yeah, that's another thing Angel mentioned. He has some concerts where he'll strum the same chord for the entire show. And, uh, it's, you know, it's America... It's the beginning of the psychedelic movement. People think this is just psychedelic stuff that's happening. They think it's they, fun. They don't so know they don't that care. this shouldn't be happening. They don't know how pissed off the band is that it's going on. They think that's just what psychedelic music is. <laughs> or they know what psychedelic music is, and they're super, super high, and they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that he did is uh, at one concert, he laced his hair. He kind of had this sort of, he had very poofy hair. Yeah. Uh, very, very poofy spherical hair. He filled... Curly is what he's trying to say. He had curly it's like hair. Beyond... No, it's not like... Because you can have curly hair that hangs down. He had curly hair that like went out. He had very curly hair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so one concert, he put a bunch of candle wax in his hair. And over the show, as he's just strumming the same note over and over, staring into the camera with this dead-eyed expression, the wax just starts to melt down his face. That's Which, again, is rad. trippy as hell if it's supposed to be happening. And there's this one great quote from Pink Floyd drummer Nick Mason. And at this point, we have mentioned all members of Pink Floyd at, at last. An hour and ten minutes <laughs> into recording. We got all four in. There's a great um, quote from Nick Mason. There was a legend that the at the wax melting concert that he also put... Uh, tranquilizer like a downer in his hair that was the street name was mandy's i don't think it's a popular drug anymore or it has a new name or something but he put mandy's in his hair and someone years later asked nick mason if that legend was true and nick was like i think it was just 
the candle wax. Sid would never waste good Mandy's. <laughs> oh, love that. Love and hate that simultaneously. Yeah. So uh, they end up having to end the tour early. And they go back to England to start work on the next album. Now, at this time, they bring in Sid's old friend, David Gilmore, to play guitar at the live shows and in the studio when they could not convince Sid to play anything. So the idea was that Sid was going to stay the main writer, but David Gilmore was just going to do the guitar stuff when Sid couldn't, which is really a weird choice because of very different guitar styles. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, uh, that's what they do. And at the first session, they record a couple of demos. And then at the first real session where Sid is introducing them to new material, uh, they're all waiting around for him. He comes in with his guitar. He's like, all right, boys, I've got a new song today. It's called Have You Got It Yet? Oh, I fucking love this bit. He's a genius. <laughs> and he starts to play it. And he starts to play this song. And he's just playing it on his guitar. And at this point, when he's demoing songs, he just plays it and then lets the other people catch on, right. essentially, because he's not communicating well enough to tell them what the well, song and, really and is. And he kind of keeps that up because on Mad Cat yeah, he Labs, does he does a very At this point, thing. he's not communicating consistently enough to be like, and here's where the bass will come in. He's like, I wrote this on the toilet. Is that is that what he's like? <laughs> yes, um, probably very frightening to be around. So even when he made jokes, probably incredibly unsettling so, to be around. Easily basically, and heartbreaking, especially uh, being good friends with him. Uh, basically, what has happened in "Have You Got It Yet" is that he would play until the band joined in, and then he would suddenly change the time signature or change the key, but he'd do it really subtly. So they didn't notice at first. And they thought that he was just like having tremors or something because he, there had been points in the previous tour where he couldn't hold his guitar pick steady. But he was doing it on purpose. And they figured it out eventually because the chorus was just him going, have you got it yet? And that's how they figured they're like, that's a punchline. That's a punchline. He knows what he's doing here. <laughs> and uh, Roger Waters, um, who you can tell in interviews that Roger Waters loves Sid Barrett like a brother to mm -hmm. this day. Mm -hmm. But Roger Waters, once they figure out that this is a prank, basically, he slams his bass down on the ground so hard that it breaks one of the strings, storms out of the room, and never plays music with Sid Barrett again. So, over the next couple of weeks, uh, they continue trying to work with Sid as a writer. And eventually, one day, they're going into the studio, Roger Waters, Nick Mason, uh, Richard Wright, and uh, David Gilmore, and all of the members of the band, this is one thing they do agree on, all of the members of the band agree that this story is true, but none of them will say who said it, which I think is interesting as hell. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're on the way to the studio, and one of them's like, shall we pick up Sid? And another one's like, no, let's not bother. And that was the day that Sid Barrett was fired from the band. Now, this is a little bit awkward because Richard Wright is still his roommate and no one has the heart to tell Sid that he's out of the band. So they start to deceive him. They're like, we're taking a break and they're in the studio every day. Uh, they play a couple of gigs. And at one point, Richard Wright goes out to play a gig and Sid is just smoking a cigarette on the couch. Uh, and Rick is like, bye, Sid. I'm going out to grab some cigarettes. And he comes back five hours later after the gig and Sid is still on the couch, exact same position, fixed stare ahead with a cigarette burnt all the way down to the filter in his hand with burn marks 
on his fingers mm. where it had burned through his fingers down oh. to the filter. And and then he just sort of was snapped out of it and was like, have you got the cigarettes? Horrifying. Mm-hmm. Right. Very, very heartbreaking to see. And that's what I don't the, know if they were childhood friends. I think that, yeah, they uh, met Richard, in college. Richard, Richard, I believe Richard Wright and Sid Barrett met in college. Okay, yeah. Richard still, Wright I mean, that's still a very formative. By that point, that would have been like I mean, they've been living together since college. If yeah. I, if I'd seen it, if I had seen you, yeah. any one of you person, go through something. That'd be horrifying. I mean, so then finally they're like, we have, we got to tell him he's out of the band. Mm-hmm. You know, and they do. And at this point, Black Hill Enterprises, you remember that company that was split seven ways between mm-hmm. the band and the managers? The managers and producers are like, Sid is the talent in this band. Of course, it never worked directly with Sid. They're like, Sid is the talent in this band. And they break with the rest of Pink Floyd and go with Sid and say, why don't we start recording a solo album, Sid? Poor decision. And that brings us to the Madcap Here we go. And there's this really, really painful quote from a 1972 interview. It was Sid Barrett's last ever interview with anyone ever. Um, And they ask about why he left Pink Floyd. And he said, I suppose it was really just a matter of being a little offhand about things. Which is so sad. Yeah. It's just a crippling quote. Because this tore him up. He missed Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. He was hurt like crazy. He would, after he got fired from the band, he would show up at the Abbey Road recording studios with his mm-hmm. guitar and wait in the waiting room to be invited in by the band. And they never did it. Uh, at one point, Pink Floyd went to play a concert in Spain. It wasn't part of a tour. It was just a one-off a concert. I guess they were getting paid enough to make it worth it. They went down to Spain and Sid walked out and said to one of his other roommates, not Richard Wright, who obviously was already in Spain, uh, he said, I'm going for a walk. And then he went down to Spain and sat in the front row at the concert and just glared at David Gilmore. The whole show. So frightening if you're David. <laughs> I don't think, uh, David and Sid were very close. They knew each other since um, elementary school, I believe. Oh, so David was David was never scared of Sid, but it must have been very hurtful for him. Definitely, to have to sit through to be down here in Spain, and then all of a sudden, one of your childhood best friends is just there. You've you've just kicked him out of the band. His life is Mm -hmm. probably over. Their whole relationship staring at you changes drastically with everybody in the band. Um, There's like this huge divide between Sid and everybody else, Mm -hmm. and it is sad because they not only were if they weren't childhood friends with him already. They still cared about him really deeply, and they recognized his talent and mm-hmm. what he brought to the band. They really right. They tried so hard him. to keep him in the band. Yeah, they tried to Brian Wilson him for a little bit, where they were like, mm-hmm. "Hey, you can hang out in the studio. You can help us produce. You know, all that." They wanted to keep him a part of it, but they just couldn't. He just got too hard to work with. He was impossible. Right. Amazing. So in 1968 and 1969, uh, he records his first solo album, "The Madcap Laughs." In 1970, he records his second solo album. Barrett, a third solo album, is released in 1988, and it's just a bunch of recordings from ni- those two albums that didn't make the original cut. Sure. Um, after 1970, he never records music again. In 1972, he's persuaded by Black Hill Enterprises to start a new band. That's a trio called Stars. It doesn't work. He shows up to concerts, plays two songs, then wanders off, that kind of thing. Exact same problems he had with Pink Floyd. And then he disappears for three years. Uh, He's still living in London at this time, on his own. And no one really sees him for three years until 1975. 
Uh, no one in Pink Floyd has seen him since David Gilmore and Roger Waters did production on the Madcap Laughs. Uh, so it's been about five years since anyone in the band has seen him, like two years since anyone, period, has seen him. Uh, 1975, Pink Floyd is recording Wish You Were Here, the album. Incidentally, Wish You Were Here is a song about Sid, mm -hmm. about how Roger Waters wished that they were still best friends because they've been friends since high school. Um, and as they're recording the song, according to some members of the band, they were actually recording the song Wish You Were Here. Um, a like 250 pound man, completely shaved, no hair, no eyebrows, no body hair, no nothing, showed up in the studio. The night before Sid Barrett had said, tomorrow I'm gonna go visit the band. Tonight I'm going to sit in my bathtub naked and shave off all of my body hair, which again, rad if it's supposed to be happening. <laughs> <laughs> Every choice he made, if it had a different motivation, would be really cool. <laughs> So he walked in and he did just like he did back in 1968. He sat in the waiting room and waited to be invited in. Nobody in the band recognized him until David Gilmore went out to ask this weird dude what he was doing there. And he had to be like within a breath of him before he recognized Sid's facial features. And he just went in and got the rest of the band and said, hey, Sid's out there. Um, and they all went out. Roger Waters took one look at him and burst into tears mm -hmm. and just left the room. Didn't speak to Sid that day. The others made conversation with him. They let him listen to the tapes. He said, it sounds a, a bit old-fashioned, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then he just eventually wandered away. No member of Pink Floyd would ever see him again except for Roger Waters, who ran into him at the grocery store less than a year before he died. Mm -hmm. Ran into him at Harrods. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, in 1979, he ran out of money. He ran out of enough money to live on his own. He still got royalties for any Pink Floyd release that included his compositions or anything he played on. He ran out of money and moved back home with his mother. And his mother, and then later, after his mother died, his sister Rosemary took care of him for the rest of his life. Uh, 2005, he is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And in 2006, uh, he dies. Uh, for most of the last part of his life, and by the last part I mean like the last 40 years, he's <laughs> painting. He never stops being artistically active. Mm -hmm. He continues painting. He doesn't sell his paintings. He doesn't display his paintings. He just paints them. Uh, they are not very good. And there's a great quote um, from one of the drummers who worked with him on the Madcap Laughs that I think really encapsulates the bittersweetness of the Sid Barrett story, so I stuck it here at the end of my notes. He gave the impression that he knew something you didn't. He just had this sort of giggle. And that quote is from the Madcap Laugh Session, so it's a little glimmer of hope that not everything was lost. Apparently, a reporter for The Guardian in 2001 attempted to interview Sid Barrett again, and they said, excuse me, I'm writing a piece about Sid Barrett. And he said, who? And they said, Sid Barrett, he used to be in Pink Floyd. And then Sid said, never heard of him. Is he one of them rappers? And they said, no, he was a psychedelic genius. Are you Sid Barrett? And apparently he said, leave me alone. I've got to get some coleslaw. 
That's so fucking funny. But yeah, he stopped going by Sid, like, mm -hmm. not well, that long after he started going by Roger again. There's a great quote that I wrote down that I skipped earlier uh, from the portion where we discussed how Sid got his name. Um, there's a quote from his sister, Rosemary. I believe this is one of the interviews from after his death. He says he was never Sid at home. He would never allow it. Yeah. Sid for him was the rock persona, the pop star persona that he never wanted. I think there is like a through line with all of these tragic figures in music where they aren't prepared for what the life is going to be for them. Oh, certainly. I think that's true for Sid Vicious. I think that's true for Sid Barrett. I think that's true for a lot of I think it's tragic true for, people and it, most but... people who have experienced fame. Yeah. But there are a couple of people who just really can't fucking do it and they go off the rails and they're they're in a time and surrounded by certain people where there's not enough resources to help them with what they need. Yeah, I think that's what happened to Sid. I think Absolutely. my own personal theory uh, is that he just suffered really bad burnout with the lifestyle on top of probably yeah. already having some mental health problems and mm -hmm. having that exacerbated by the drugs and the touring and all that right. stuff. Right. I think there was a lot of stress on him, and I think, like you said, he never considered himself to be a musician. So if he ever did pick up music, it was a fun thing. It wasn't supposed to become his job. Mm -hmm. And then it was his job, and he probably didn't know how to process that. That's speculation, mm -hmm. but, like, I, just, I don't know. He fell into something before he was I, prepared, I think. Also, this is something that I never knew before doing research for this. According to the public records of Cambridge... Uh, he was engaged to be married for a brief time in the mid-80s, uh, but the marriage never took place. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I just worry about people who get so excited about how great those albums are. I'm not worried about it. I, I just sort of think, that's not the real Sid. Now, what am I? Who am I to say that? Maybe that's just my problem, not theirs. I could never listen to Madcap Laughs or the other one, Barrett. I could never listen to those records because it was like a shadow of what I'd known. And this is sort of trying to find the bits of gold dust in the pan, which are sort of washing out, and then trying to stick them together and turn them into a nugget. Whereas what he was doing back with the Floyd, he was producing the nuggets. Okay. <laughs> so there are three distinct recording sessions for this album. Uh, so the first set of sessions is with uh, producer Peter Jenner. Uh, only one song that was recorded during the session made it onto the final album, and that is the final track, Late Night, which I know is Emily's favorite. It's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites. Don't go putting words in my mouth. <laughs> and uh, the basic tracks were recorded in this session, and the um, slide guitars, which are the best part of the track, were overdubbed during later sessions. Anyway, at the end of the session, they get a bunch of demos for many of the songs that would later go on. Some snippets of those demos are used, superimposed on cuts from later sessions. Uh, but mostly this stuff gets lost. Um, at the end of these sessions, Sid Barrett tells his roommate once again that he's going on a walk. He then breaks up with his girlfriend, goes on a massive road trip around England, and ends up in a psychiatric ward. At so, what point do people in Sid's life, however few there may be at this point... Get nervous every time he says he's going to go on a walk or even go outside. I, I have friends <laughs> like that. <laughs> I have friends like that, and they uh, are sitting in this room, actually. Is well, it's it not me. Angel? I only go on a walk with a very specific purpose. It's definitely it's Jackson Burnett. Absolutely. Whatever's Jackson, left in that beer is Jackson mine. Jackson runs every time he gets drunk. I don't run. I'm not a run running drunk. Jackson's, I always stay put. Jackson's one of those guys that if you were at the bar with him, he is so much fun until he takes his, like, sixth drink. 
And then like and once he he's had... either going to be sad, angry, or somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's a really great personal assessment. I mean, seriously, once 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 you pass that point of no return, and you can tell pretty clearly with Jackson where that is. Right, some uh, sort he of is spectacle gone. to you, <laughs> physically and emotionally. So. Um, after Sid Barrett gets out of the psychiatric ward, several months have passed. It's now 1969, um, early summer. Uh, there are new sessions with producer Malcolm Jones, who I believe was also associated with Black Hill Records. I guess Peter Jenner had enough. Um, and a lot of amazing stuff happens during these sessions. About half of the tracks that end up on the final album are recorded with Malcolm Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other half were recorded with David Gilmore and Roger Waters as producer. We'll get to that later. But you can clearly tell which ones were produced by who. There are two kinds of songs on the album. One where Sid is playing and there's a full backing band. Um, you know, keyboards, uh, sometimes lead guitar. Most of it's played by Sid, but some of it's by guests. You know, bass, drums. All of those songs with full bands were recorded with Malcolm Jones. They have a lot more weight to them. They're meatier. Uh, but they're also less emotionally jarring. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the Malcolm Jones ones, because Malcolm Jones was like, let's really polish this up and make it a really good album. David Gilmore and Roger Waters in their sessions uh, were more of the philosophy that Sid is a haunting genius and we should just record him with his guitar and maybe put some drums on top later. So you can tell there's a marked, marked difference. Um, between the two and I think they both work I think they're both very good I think one thing a lot of people who recognize this album as a classic don't realize is how fast a lot of this was done right. uh, Terrapin which is the first song and probably the one of the most beloved songs on the album by people who know it um, was recorded in two takes Sid did the acoustic guitar and the main vocals in one take and then in a second take he did the backing vocals and the electric guitar uh, the song Here I Go, which is one of my favorites on the album, was written in five minutes because they needed to uh, fill out the rest of side one. They need one more song for side one. He wrote Here I Go in like five minutes and banged it out that day. A lot of this album was rec- written and recorded in a very, very short time. Uh, interestingly, in the Malcolm Jones sec- uh, sessions, when he was playing with a backing band, which just by the way, was the band Soft Machine, a notorious psychedelic jazz band, who I'm sure we will get to eventually. There are a couple of their albums I'd really love to cover. Um, Basically, what they would do was Sid was a non-communicative guy at this point in his life. He could not tell them what he wanted or what he expected, which in a band setting is kind of okay because it's a band. In a solo album setting, you kind of expect someone to be like, this is what the big man wants. Right. You you kind of expect someone to have a vision uh-huh. for their solo album. And uh, like, there's, there's this fun story I read uh, from the uh, drummer of Soft Machine, Robert Wyatt, who, again, stick with us for long enough and you'll hear more about him. Uh, Robert Wyatt said that often the band would be in, they were a three-piece, keyboards, bass, and drums, and they would be in <laughs> in the recording studio, and they would be getting ready to lay down the track, and they'd go, what key is it in, Sid? And Sid would go, that's funny, and start playing. 
(laughs) (laughs) So basically what ended up happening is that Sid would play live in the studio. He'd play the songs enough times for the band to get the gist of it. And then they'd just do a live take with the band following Sid around as he played the song. Uh, There's one quote, it was a case of following him, not playing with him. They were seeing and then playing, so there were always a note behind. This is funny because I'm not in this fucking insufferable room having to deal with this. <laughs> right, of course. It's very funny outside, but having to work with him, I probably would have blown my brains out. I would have felt like it, for I sure. I would have quit. No, there's no I way. Mean, I, I as an artist, out. if I was put in a room with someone that was doing shit like that, I, I feel like... No, Soft Machine were Soft Machine were the right band for the job. Sure. Soft Machine once played a single song for 24 hours straight in the middle of downtown London. Love Soft Machine. Again, well, you'll hear more about them later. So... Towards the end of the Malcolm Jones sessions, they're planning to record for about another month. Pink Floyd is playing a concert in France. Sid gets wind of this. One day, he tells his roommate, I'm going on a walk. Goes to France. Wonderful. (laughs) Goes to France, uh, watches the concert, meets the band after the concert, and asks them if they would produce his record for him. Of course, Malcolm Jones is back at Abbey Road waiting to continue producing the record. (laughs) But David Gilmour and Roger Waters are intrigued. And they agree to do so. And they call Malcolm and they're like, sorry, mate. <laughs> and it was actually, it seems like a, a like a really friendly gesture. And to some extent it was. But you can tell in interviews that Gilmore and Waters were a kind of ambivalent about working with Sid. Uh, there's a quote from Gilmore. Sid was very difficult. We got that frustrated feeling. Look, it's your fucking career, mate. Why don't you just get your finger out and do something? The guy was in trouble and was a close friend for many years before then, so it was really the least we could do. Um, So they finish the rest of the recordings. The album is produced and mixed in two days, and then it's ready to go. It's released uh, in January of 1970. Um, And another interesting thing about it, a lot of people think the acoustic tracks are the weaker half of the album. There's a really interesting quote from David Gilmore where he was like, we like to always say that we wanted to help him and that he was our friend. And of course that's true, but things were still very bitter at the time. So maybe we were trying to punish him a little bit, (laughs) which I think is very interesting. I personally love the acoustic tracks in the UK. The album peaked at number 40 and received positive reviews. Uh, There was one show in promotion of the album. David Gilmore played uh, guitar at that show Sid played four songs and then wandered off stage and was not seen for another week or so. Is he <laughs> just were, getting bored? Or there were no more performances. Again, reminds me a lot of a certain somebody. <laughs> there, were, there were no further performances. And what did Sid have to say about the album? In his final interview, the 1972 interview I mentioned earlier, he said, It's quite nice, but I'd be very surprised if it did anything. If I were to drop dead, I don't think it would stand as my last statement. Of course, it is my favorite album of all time. Really? <laughs> yes. It's, yeah, I, yeah, it is. Actually, yes, it is my favorite album. I think that's interesting because I think the, I have the same problem that you guys had last week with Nevermind the Bollocks where everything sounds the same and songs don't have a clear beginning or end to you. I'm not mm-hmm. a big psychedelic rock person. I think uh-huh. it's fine. I like Pink Floyd. Right. Um, it's never, I don't say this to be mean because this is not an insult from me this is an album i would fall asleep to yes you could it's slow ish 
even when the tempo is a little higher, it's still, he sings in a very sleepy way. Mm-hmm. Very laid back. Like you said, it, he gets quieter when he gets away from Pink Floyd. Not as noisy. Um, for me, this is not an album that I would put on to drive or to energize me or to inspire me or to do anything. <laughs> I would just go to bed. It's, I think it's very good at being calming. It's a candle album. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah, a bathtub album. This is not. Bath, that's perfect. This is not a work album. And this it, is not a workout album. This is a bathtub. No. Album. And it also this kind of happened by coincidence because you know half were produced by one person and the other half were produced mm-hmm. by someone else. But it naturally winds down all the way through. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the energy, it keeps getting more stripped back the further on it goes. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but you're right. I probably I've never heard this album in its entirety. Um, didn't know that Sid Barrett had a solo career. Like I said, I'm not a big psychedelic rock person. Right. Um, so I listened to this album for the first time. And then I've played it about four or five times since. I do like some of the songs on it. I don't know that I would necessarily go back and listen to it enough that I would just like learn the words or anything right, like that. Right, right. I'm sure that hurts you deeply. I, I, on the other hand, listened to this album the other day to prepare for this episode. Mm-hmm. I listened to it in the car. And I found that I know every single lyric in this album from beginning to end. There's actually one line on this record that directly calls out Pink Floyd. It's in Here I Go, which is telling because that's a song he wrote in five minutes. So it's just what came to his head. And I think the lyric is, I hope that she will talk to me now and even allow me to hold her hand and forget that old band. Hmm. So you can tell it comes out. There's a little bit of bitterness in that. You can tell that he's, he's still sad that he got ditched by his friends. And I think that he knew that to a certain extent, what was happening to him was out of his control, but also he knew it was happening and in certain ways wished that something different could happen. Because mm-hmm. I think he hated the fame, but I do think he loved the music making and I think he loved his friends. Mm-hmm. I think he liked it as a hobby. I think it was really important use of his time and a good outlet for him. And that was not something he was ever going to get back. What are What are some of your favorite tracks? Um, I know you talked about Terrapin being pretty beloved. Um, so I, I say all of this without having any real prior knowledge of the album. I think Terrapin and probably Octopus, which I think Octopus was a single. Octopus is great. It was a single. Um, yeah. It was the only single released from the album. And I don't know that this album, I know you said it peaked at 40. I don't think it kind of crashed it, and burned It for charted real. at 40 when it was first released. Oh, okay. It has become a lot more renowned since then sure yeah probably especially since after his death but 40 is not bad no 40 no no i mean out of 100 i mean shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah i would say those two um even though i have listened to this song or this album a handful of times i don't think i have and closely like it wasn't distracted (laughs) right like laid down listened to it and only listened to it um I don't know if I could remember off the top of my head any other standout songs from this. See, that's funny because I think Dark Globe... Dark Globe is, I will say this as someone who's been a member of the fandom for many years, Dark Globe is pretty universally recognized as the best song on the album. Yeah, I think Dark Globe is probably the best song on the album personally like my my personal aesthetic it's definitely the best of the one that was produced by ones produced by david and roger sure i don't disagree i just don't remember what it sounds like it sounds kind of cool but it has like this um kind of daniel johnston-y feel Mm. you know it's like this sort of canned acoustic emotional he does a a, some some screamy singy Mm -hmm. his vocals are you know 
kind of distorted in some ways. And, like, I, I don't know. I just think it's really fucking cool. Uh, it, and like I said, it, it appeals to my aesthetic sensibilities the most. Uh, I don't think it's probably the most successful of the songs on the album. Um, no Man's Land No Man's Land is also a favorite of mine. Well, I think that's why Terrapin and uh, why, why Octopus was a single and then why Terrapin is so successful. For me, they sound like the most traditional listenable songs. Listenable, and I'm willing yeah. to bet that they're Malcolm songs. Terrapin was Malcolm Jones. Okay, I was gonna say those yeah. are the most like uh, octopus sounding. Yeah, they're one. the most like poppy. Like, which is why they stand out the most to me. I octopus think. was David Gilmore. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, yeah. Since I don't, I'm not a big psychedelic rock person. For the fifth time that I'll say that. Um, <laughs> so yeah. the Malcolm Jones yeah. ones are definitely catchier. That's yeah. That's what it is. That's why they stand out to me. Is they're catchy. That's why the other ones put me to sleep. It's not that they're bad songs. Do you think that they kind of capitalized off of this? Or no, no one would try to capitalize off someone who just destroyed their own career after one mildly successful album. Well, you don't think that there would be some underbelly kind of way to make money? Well, on, like like capitalizing no, on the magic, like Sid Barrett. Well, they did still uh, have their stakes in Black Hill Enterprises. Yeah, that's just, uh, that's what I'm, because it sounds like everyone was really quick to throw him away, mm. but, but also. I, they tried to keep him in the band for like half a year. I, f- I don't know if they tried to throw him away so much as they had a better understanding of what working with him was like, and I don't know. I think well, they were they just, just trying to get something to go good for different... themselves out of it. Right. Because they right. were like, well, he wants us to be here, we owe him one. Throw him away is not the appropriate term. I just. I don't know if their hearts were in it. Like you said, they were pretty, at least David and, and Roger were pretty ambivalent about recording with him. So they didn't necessarily, they didn't not want to be there, Well, right? but they weren't going to put their whole heart into it because they were probably going to be disappointed because that's what happened with Pink Floyd. <laughs> well, I'll say this. Right. David Gilmore came back for Barrett's second album. Roger Waters did not. Just to be, like, super clear, if y'all ever did that to me, like, fuck you. <laughs> like, if, if something happens and if this we, thing okay. took off I and then I, like, I'll never produce your album. Of, if you do, if, if this gets big and you do too much acid. I got I get out of my mind and I can't do shows, I can't record, I'm, like, nodding out in the corner. You'd still, you would, you would, um, you guys would Brian Wilson me, right? Well, Maybe. Depends I, on if you, you can still Brian work the Wilson editing technology. Here's the thing, Adam. I would Brian <laughs> Wilson here, Here's the thing. No, okay, you sh- you might, but you shouldn't. And here's why. Yeah, no, no. I don't care about what you should or shouldn't do. No, you I shouldn't. I couldn't not Brian Wilson, you guys, because I love you. It's it goes not about, deeper than what we should do. It's not about whether or not we love each other. It's about how fucking embarrassing and difficult it would be if any of us did something like that. Because if you have a Sid Barrett... I think just, I'm just more dedicated to you, you guys no, than you are to you, me. If you have a Sid Barrett on stage detuning his fucking guitar, if you have a Sid Vicious nodding out and mumbling in an interview and unable yeah. to carry the whole damn thing, kick the fucker to the curb. Any He's member of Motley Crue, any member of uh, Guns N' Roses, same old story. Yeah. They're, they're keeping you off. You're right. You know, They're you, holding you back. They're embarrassing yeah. themselves and you. I Wasting think, people's ticket money, showing up two time, hours late, playing effort, three energy. songs and leaving. I, and you gotta keep in mind, not that this excuses abandoning your friend. I don't think it's abandoning. But you gotta keep in mind that these are guys <laughs> in their early 20s. I mean, these guys were younger than me when this was going on. Their lives the, are and just these, starting. This might be their only yeah, opening. I mean, Jackson, you're 54, so. <laughs> now I'm 25. <laughs> yeah. I just love the album. I just really, I, I, I don't laugh at I me. feel like I'm missing something. 
So that's how I feel with all psychedelic rock. I feel like this is not psychedelic rock. This is psychedelic folk, which is way uh, better. Maybe that's the problem. Anytime folk gets mixed with other things, I'm like, mm, that's almost music. Well, you, yeah, you I can't wait until we talk about folk <laughs> punk on this podcast. <gasps> ew, ew, if you do, if you do, if you do, Brian Wilson, instant Brian Wilson. <laughs> you Brian Wilson me. Uh, but that makes sense. You mentioned that it's an album that you could go to sleep to, an album that you could light a candle to, but it sounds like that doesn't really float your boat. Now, I love that shit. I, I can't get enough of music like that. Or lighting I absolutely candles. love it. Maybe I just thrive on tension. It could be. Yeah. Although there is a lot of tension in this album, especially well, in yeah. the vocals on, on all of it, really. I would say this is not like it's not an a album truly that relaxing. I, it's not like an easy listening album. No, it just calms me down. And it's also they, but not, the musical and, part kind of is. It's There's not a an album of... that I listen to often. Mm. Is what I will say. It's not something that I'm like, oh damn, I really want to hear the Madcap laughs. Doesn't get stuck in my head. Doesn't. It is yeah. like Jackson because he cares a lot about the artist and the history behind it mm -hmm. and it really resonates with him and that's okay it's just not something that i'm like damn i really want to play that in my ear save the few tracks that we mentioned earlier mm -hmm. that are my well favorites. i do really uh like the music too even if you know it was different lyrics by a different person i would still like the music although it probably wouldn't rate quite as high right mm -hmm. right sid barrett the madcap laughs beloved by two-thirds of the population now let's talk about our <clears throat> delightful pizza for this evening. Oh, I cannot wait to talk about this pizza. Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Little Cheese. Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest. You know, I really love Sid Barrett. I think I made that pretty apparent uh -huh. in this episode. And funnily enough, Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Cheese Pizza is also a pizza that I really fucking love. That's fucking right. I love this pizza. And I, I you know what? I would love it... So much that I would spend actual money on it if it wasn't so gosh darn greasy. That's my only critique. It's just so greasy. It's like I have um, to I have to wash my hands after every other bite. It's oh, no. Very... I have to clean up after I'm done eating. Uh, no. Em, 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 <laughs> that is pizza. It's just so excessive. If you don't have to blot your fucking pizza like your eighth grade face, no, no, then no, it's no, not no, worth no, no, eating. No. I, I, you know, I just. Really or disagree. in my case, your junior year face. <laughs> that is of college, by the way. I just don't. You agree. broke out late. I just don't think that it's. I, I just. I broke out early too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's my opinion on the pizza. You know, I think it's a wonderful option if you just have six bucks and you really, really want a lot of food. Um, I, I think it tastes good. Uh, I love the crust, unlike you know Mr. Winkleplek over here. So I, I, the only thing I have to say is the grease man. D make. The garlic butter an option like Papa John's. No, no, Don't no, no, pour no, 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 it no. on the pizza. No, the garlic That's butter on the pizza answer. is what makes it. I'm gonna say two point seven out of five. Holy that shit! That did not sound like you were building up to that. You are very complimentary of that pizza. That sounds like at least a three point seven. Yeah, no, honestly, I, I, to if me, not a it sounds four. like a four minus grease. Yeah, because you only had one point of contention with this pizza, so but that's one point. The grease is overwhelming. I tried to make that clear, y'all. The grease is overwhelming. I think you're a coward. I do, too. Well, that's Because here's what I do. Be I dip my pizza in garlic butter, fucking regardless. So to have it on there saves me a step. It saves me mess, actually. It's less messy, because it doesn't drip. 
Exactly. I don't get it on my clothes When's or on my pants. When's the last time you got little Caesars on your clothes? Listen, when did this turn into a let's kill Emily rally When you here, started man? being wrong. I just don't like yeah. the grease. The gr- Otherwise, it would be a 3.7. That's a really, really high pizza out of five. Wow. Come on. Wow. Otherwise, it would be a 3.7. The grease puts it at a two, a solid 2.7. That's how I feel. I respect your mathematical I, I, reasoning, but not your actual reasons. Well, yeah. You know, I, I accept the, the quantitative part of it, here. not the qualitative part of this. We are yes. adults. That's a great way to put it. Thank you, Angel. Yeah, and we're, and we're discussing this like reasonable right, adults. You know that's fine. I said, my, pi- I said my piece. I said my piece. <laughs> that's just, that's how I feel about the pizza. Angel, how do you feel? Uh, I disagree with you on the garlic butter, as we know, pretty vehemently. Um, the crust for me... Hey, Angel thinks I'm not going to come after them just as hard. I know you are, and that's why I'm looking directly at you. Because I know it's coming, and I'm ready. <laughs> but the crust is... It, I like the texture. I like that it's it's a big, thick crust, right? I'm, crust I'm is not that. legally part of the pizza. That, shut the fuck I'm going to shove man. this napkin down shut your up. goddamn throat. I'll shut up. I'll shut up until you're done. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just feel like if you're going to put, if you're going to go to, take the extra mile, put the garlic butter on the pizza for me. Why don't you also put a little bit on the crust, a little bit of Parmesan, well, even just olive oil, salt, and pepper. I don't ask for much. How are you going to yeah, keep it I under $6? Here's the thing. I, that's not, I don't give a fuck. There's no way that they're not selling that pizza at like 150% markup. It costs them 25 cents to make. Probably less, yeah. Probably less. So they can put some fucking part. It doesn't have to be like well, grated. Listen, man, just... not everybody wants that that cheapy. Uh, Make it an option. Sawdust parm on their pizza. Let me let me let me upcharge it for fifty you cents. You put it on while it's hot so it melts. I don't want to do that. That's if it doesn't work, it's works. not. It's a, not. It's a preparation. No, I want issue. them to bake it into the crust. I don't want them to just shake oh, it on I there. Oh, I see. They do I have stuffed it... crust at Little Caesars. That's not the same. Pizza. Well, simply put, the Little Caesars extra most bestest with cheese is the best eating experience that I've ever had. Um, Limited, it, it's just It's delicious. <laughs> it's basically just a solid, it's like a slab of cheese, you know, a slab of concrete. You know, you ever see one that just looks like a perfect slab of concrete that it's got this nice little swirl in it? That's how I feel when I look at a well-made Little Caesars Extra Asbestos of cheese. It's just a slab of cheese. None of this fancy shit. Uh, no craziness, no ridiculous, you know, there's no pineapple on it. There's no onions on it, you know, and it, 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 it gives me life. It's the only thing that's made me happy for the last five months. And it's a 10 out of 10. I like it. I would, I would actually pay for it. And I, I don't knock Little Caesars pizza. I just normally am like, yeah, the crust is easily the weakest part. The crust is not good. You're I right. know it's a cheap But that's pizza. not legally part of the pizza. Yes, it is. The foundation is part of a house. The crust is part of the pizza. What do you consider to be the pizza? The cheese. No, 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 Just no, 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 cheese no. Pizza? Dough, dough is the only actual legal ingredient of a pizza because the pizza is whatever you have laying no, no, around. No, no, no. In no, Italy, no. they don't play these fucking games. It's true. Italian pizza is different. We're not talking Angel about Italian pizza. Angel is not European or Italian, but they do order in fluent Spanish, so. Many of you I'm may sorry. be aware that Spanish I'm, is not spoken in Italy. I'm going to unleash so much violence. We're falling apart. Wait, wait, okay, back to Sid Barrett for a second. I think I read something where his former roommates, not... Um, not Richard Wright, not Richard. keyboard player for Pink Floyd. Yeah, two, two people who went by nicknames. I don't know the source from this. I just read it on Wikipedia. 
um, and I didn't scroll down to see where they got that information uh-huh. from. Uh-huh. But allegedly, those roommates were like intentionally giving him LSD like every morning. I've heard that story. Uh, the stuff that I put in my notes is only stuff that I know for a fact is true. I know a lot about Sid Barrett. I've done a lot of research. I refreshed my memory with Wikipedia, but I made sure only to put in things that I know are true uh that is something that i have heard before from a couple of places but i'm not 100 percent. i'm not 100 percent on it so i didn't put it in but apparently his roommates thought he was really funny when he was on acid uh so they would give him acid every morning well the reason i bring that up is because if you fuck with me again emily styles i'm gonna start doing that to you oh goodness that's not where i thought we were going just kind of a fucking bummer like I, I i hate to say that and i think it was wonderfully done jackson hats off to you wonderful Absolutely. job with your research as usual but my god i mean what is it's a bummer what a depressing situation mm-hmm. but it's uh, very interesting and you hope there's enough ambiguity to it and obviously there is a reality we don't know what it is but to those of us who aren't sid barrett or his immediate family there is a hope that being at home for the rest of his life doing paintings is what he wanted to be doing. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's a hope to it. Yeah. Uh, but it is a very sad situation yeah. nonetheless. And, and one, I think, that reminds us all of something that is becoming increasingly more difficult to do is uh, respect people's privacy, mm-hmm. even if they're famous or if they're not famous. They do not owe you explanations yeah. or uh, anything just because they're public figures. Even so. if they're famous and even if they're scandalous. Yeah. Unless they've sold more than 100,000 records, at which point they are legally... Yeah, at which point they are a corporate entity and not a person. <laughs> entity? Well, that's Sid Barrett's The Madcap Laughs and Little Caesar's Extra Most Bestest Cheese. We'll see you next week. I'm Jackson Burnett with Emily Stiles and Angel Winklepleck. Goodbye. Later. Thank you.